Good morning. We're looking, we're going through a series of Paul's letters to the Philippians. We're going verse by verse, and what we've determined is that it has the theme of joy running through it. And when we understand Paul, when we see the conditions that he's in, we're surprised by this joy. He's imprisoned, and he's cut off from those he cares about. To add insult to injury, he is sitting alone while the churches he has planted are attacked by those attempting to alienate believers from him. And yet, joy is the theme of this letter that he writes. Uh, The reason for this joy, we'll see it this morning, the advancement of the gospel, uh, because of the joy of service. Look what it says, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. When Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, what he's saying is now hear this. Okay, so I'm going to call attention to something, and and I'm going to tell you ahead of time that you've got to listen to this because it might be difficult to believe, but you need to understand it. Um, He calls... Uh, He says, though I'm in chains, the word of God is not imprisoned. He is in chains, he is in prison, and yet what he's going to say to them, now hear this, I am in chains, but the word of God is not in chains. Um, He says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What he stresses is that his chains did not curtail his ministry. In fact, what he says to them, is that evangelism and discipleship have been on the rise since he was imprisoned, which is something that they're going to need to hear because they assume that Paul is the chief spokesperson. He is the one they rely on to keep things on track. And if he's in prison, then what's going to happen to the message that he preaches? What about the spiritual growth of the individuals who depend on him? And what he writes is that things on both ends, evangelism and discipleship, everything is going really well, and he's not being evangelistic. You know what evangelistic means is when you talk about God's work and you don't quite tell the truth, you stretch things a little bit. So how many people, oh, there were tens of people reached and tens of hundreds of people. And, and sometimes when we talk about God's work, it gets stretched a little bit, not evangelistic, Evangelistic, but Paul's not being evangelistic. Uh, evangelism, he says, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Um, the thing about Paul is that when he's in prison, those who 
are tending to him are captive audiences. <laughs> he has to listen to them, but they have to listen to him. And he's not, he wouldn't be irritating, I don't think, but they, he would talk about what's going on. And they are listening to him, so it's getting out. And not only that, discipleship-wise, he says, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord, by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And if Paul is going through it, something starts to fall. It's one individual who is in a place where they are showing courage and boldness. Then, based on that person's example, others find the ability to do that as well. And one by one by one by one by one, they are not as afraid to talk about Christ and what he means to them. And, and um, there are some... And this is the downside, and you'd expect Paul to be a little chafed by this, that are taking advantage of Paul's imprisonment. They want, they're tearing him down and building themselves up. Uh, he says the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So there's individuals then who are taking advantage of Paul's absence to pull their cars into his parking spot. You know, the one they has right in front of the church at Philippi for Paul only. They know he's not going to come. He's not going to park his car. So they just cruise right in. I'll take Paul's spot. And, uh, and you think that Paul would go frism, frism, rism, frism. Well, you know, we might. But what Paul ends up doing is saying, you know what? These individuals, even though they're not preaching the truth for the right reasons, they are talking about Christ. And you know what? In that respect, then, the word is getting out. Um, Paul, when he says these things about the joy of evangelism happening, he's not pretending. And we might look and say, how in the world can you be having this kind of attitude? Uh, he has a radically different ver vision of church growth, it seems. Um, you know what? When you look at what the Bible says about what promotes the gospel, even what promotes either its spread or its being more rooted in us and us being more rooted in it. What the Bible says about what favors the spread of the gospel is pretty surprising. It's not the kind of things that we would imagine. Let me ask you a question. I want you to think about, I ask you, how can you tell? if a church is being blessed. What things would you look for? Just think to yourself. What things would you look for? How would you tell? Um, the Bible says some surprising things about what happens in a place where the word of God is moving forward. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 12. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What, is, what Jesus is saying is that in the same way that a seed goes into the ground, and when you think of that, you think of a seed, apple seed, some kind of seed. Think of an apple seed. you got an apple seed that goes into the ground, and what happens? 
the dirt and the soil decays the shell, breaks down the shell, right? So in that sense, the seed dies. What ends up happening, because that seed goes into the ground and dies, what ends up happening? It ends up putting up a tree. The tree then produces many seeds. One seed dies so that a bunch of apples and a bunch of seeds are born. When Jesus talks about how it works, that's the kind of the model that he gives for how the word goes forward. And the reason what he says is interesting and when he says it is interesting as well. What ends up happening, the reason why he says this is this is just what happened. They are at the, they are at the feast, I think maybe the feast, of, the feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem. So everybody in Jerusalem at that time, if you were a God-fearing Jew, you went to Jerusalem three times with three different feasts during the course of a year. And they are there for the feast of Pentecost. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Gentiles. Um, so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So here's what Jesus heard. There's some Greeks, some Gentiles, who want to connect with you. And then what Jesus ended up saying, what we just read, okay, it's go time. Now's the time. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Do you know what Jesus is saying? Now's the time that I have to go into the ground. Because if I go into the ground and die, these Gentiles who are coming to look for me, they will be able to receive spiritual life. One dies so that others live. That's what he's indicating. That's the way it kind of works. Church growth, in some ways then, in terms of evangelism, is like sowing seeds. This is a pleasant picture when you think of sowing seeds. That's kind of a nice picture. You know, Johnny Appleseed spreading the seeds. And when God spreads seeds, the picture is not as nice. He spreads a seed, and in some ways, a grave comes to exist. Spiritual life is resurrection life. Death in order for life to exist. Um, it doesn't just apply to Jesus. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians 2. We're going to land on some good news, but this feels melancholy. It feels a little bit, not dark, but this is not something... He, wonderful! <laughs> Say that again, Mike. Uh, We die so that others can live. Great! And if you think it's great, you're not hearing me. You're not hearing me. But it's what he says. And when he talks about what causes the gospel to go forward, it's things that we might not expect. You think that the gospel would go forward when people see people who do it well and say it right, that individuals look at people whose life is so together and they go, what boy, I want to be like that person. 
And so then I want to, I want to, what, that person followed Jesus, I want to follow Jesus. That person's got it all together and, and the way they live their life and they're always smiling and I, and I, I want to be like that person. Oh, it would be nice if spiritual growth happened that way. Maybe it does. Occasionally it's not what Jesus is saying. Not what Jesus is saying. Um, in that sense, we'll get to some good news, but we're going to have to wander through some dark water. But it's real water. It's, the way it works. And so let's listen to what the Bible has to say. Um, it says, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. What it's talking about here, there's an image. When the Roman army defeated a people, it would come back and have a parade. Uh, so this parade would go through the streets of Rome and in the Center of the parade would be the conquering general who would be riding in a chariot. And he would lead an army in triumphal procession. And so there's the commanding general in going through the streets of Rome, all kinds of people on both sides of the street, ticker tape parade. Yeah, everybody's cheering. And then there's an army behind the general being led in triumphal procession. They are follow behind the chariot. And this army is the conquered army. They are shuffling along behind. It's kind of a, if, well, if you're conquering general and if you're a Roman, it's, it's good news. If you care about the conquered army being led in the wake of the commanding general, it's not great news. And you know what Paul says? Jesus, the conquering general, leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. Do you remember who goes behind the conquering general? It's the conquered people. It's saying he leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. And so... In that sense, then, Paul identifies himself with the POWs being led in the wake of the commanding general. There were many at Paul's time who think if you're part of Jesus, you're part of the winning team. And it is the winning team, but it's not winning now. And Paul indicated that he is putting himself in with that crew. I have a friend who spent some time in county jail, went to see him at one point. And he was telling me about he went from that place in county jail and he went to the hospital. He was a person who had just done some minor thing. But anyways, but he got chained up just like everybody else did. And so he had the, he had the, the waist manacle and he had his arms put attached to the waist manacle and he had manacles around his ankles and he went into a big hospital. And so he was, and he talked about what it felt like as it was very crowded. And he's walking through the lobby of this place. And then people start, naturally, they look at him, and it's just like the, the sea parted. And just people getting out of his way. And it's just, holy smokes, you know. Paul's identifying himself with those people. Um, he says that those who steward the gospel face suffering and death so that others can experience life. 
It says, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. That's why I suffer as I do. Uh, he associates, as it relates to ministry, human weakness with divine strength. Again, we, we're going to apply this to all of us. But it creates a very, not bleak picture, but a little bit dark. Um, as you think about this, from one perspective, motives don't seem to matter. He says, you know, some preach Christ out of envy and selfish ambition, seeking to cause me trouble. But you know what? As long as Christ is proclaimed. From another perspective, though, motives do matter. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 3. This is a passage that gets, is applied to people in general. And this is the passage, when you read it, you would assume that when you stand before God, he is going to run the highlight reel. We're going to stand there, and then he'll run our highlight reels, and then it'll show, there it is. Oh, you're not going to show the time I did this. We imagine that he's going to surface and expose whether we did gold, silver, or precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble, how we lived our life. It's not talking about people in general. And again, we'll read this and we'll apply it and talk about who it is referring to. According to the grace of God, Paul says, given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And you give the sense there, and I've heard this talked about, and what it it's applied to people in general that all of us, God will look at our work and he'll take out the blowtorch and go, you know, and then we have to watch our work go up in flames. And then whatever remains will get rewarded for. And then it's the sense of, well, geez, I hope I have something. I don't think it's talking about believers in general. I think it's talking about those in spiritual positions of spiritual authority in particular. What Paul is saying, he laid the foundation and others are building on it. They come into the place where he laid a foundation and they're going to talk about Jesus. That's the work. They are in the position of spiritual influence. They claim to know. And they come into these places and they build on. And so what he's talking about with respect to not sheep here, but shepherds, not those who are receiving the message, but those who are giving. The, Paul, the Bible talks about two different kinds of people. There are some called out, and Paul is one of them, to be stewards. And a steward is one that receives something from the master and gives it to the servants. So there is the servant, and there's the steward who receives things to give to the servants. And what Paul is indicating, the work is that which the stewards, how well did they distribute the thing that God told them to tell the servants? How well did they do it? If they did it well, they'll be rewarded. If not well, if they, if they felt like the end justifies the means, 
if they add this and that to the message, because this and that will get people to obey better. There's things that you can add to the message to get people to hurry up and try to obey. You can add fear and make people afraid. You can put the mantle of fear over people's head and say, if you don't, <laughs> or obligation, you should and you ought to, or guilt, fear, obligation, and guilt. Can fear, obligation, and guilt motivate people to do things? Absolutely. The person who uses fear, obligation, and guilt to motivate people to do things, when God assesses the work of that individual and he sees a bunch of fear, obligation, and guilt, will that person get high marks? No. That person will not get high marks. That is not the message we've been given to give. It's not. The message we've been given is God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. Don't use fear. Don't use obligation. Don't use guilt. Whoa, whoa, whoa. But wait a minute. Fear, obligation, guilt, they work, don't they? They work. Yeah, but they're skin deep and short-lived. Remember the wilderness? God showed up on the mountain. It was really scary. Really scary. There was, you know, we think about Moses on Mount Sinai and puffy clouds and angels going, oh, you know, really, it really wasn't nice. There was, it smelled like smoke and, and there was these big noises and holy smokes. <laughs> Moses was trembling with fear. That's what he says. Moses was trembling with fear as he went up. He was like the cowardly lion walking toward the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> That certainly would have impressed the people, and they, they were scared stiff. They were so scared that 40 days later they, molded, they made the golden calf. And what was said, you better obey or else. And 40 days later they threw the gold together. Fear seems like a good motivation to get people to obey. You know the problem is? It doesn't last. It doesn't last. That's why God doesn't use it, because he's interested in not your quick as a bunny obedience. You know what God's interested in you? is a long obedience in the same direction. You're not where you should be. You're making progress. It's slow, but you're thinking more clearly about him. That's what he's looking at. God is very patient. He understands what you're dealing with. He doesn't need for you to change tomorrow. You know, the fact that your issues that you're dealing with don't make him nervous. He doesn't get impatient. He understands that that's the way it works. Um, motives impact workers' rewards. Those who assume that the ends justify the means, who use fear, obligation, and guilt to drive devotion, their work will not stand the test of time. That's what this passage talks about. That's the judgment here. I don't think we're going to be judged. We're not going to be judged. Because what does the new covenant say? I will be helios to their unrighteousnesses and will remember their sins no more. I don't think we're going to have a highlight reel. I really don't. I don't think we're going to have to sit there and, and watch things go by. So the motivation God's going to use to get you to obey is not that you're going to have to sit through a shameful experience what it's going to be. He really does care about you. 
And he did die so that you could live. And what he would have us to do is to understand how much we're loved and allow that love to cause us to increase our listening to him and our trust of him. It's Because what God's going to assess in terms of assessing is not what you do, but why you do what you do. Motives. Um, he does. Uh, we talk about human weakness, divine strength. Look what it says. Paul writes, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Um, the thorn, we don't know what it was. We think it might have been an eye problem. It was something that caused individuals to see Paul and go. I remember once I was playing uh, Little League Baseball. I wasn't a great baseball player. I had a checkered career in baseball. I think my one of my first experiences in baseball, I was don't know what I was doing there. I was sitting in the the umpire's box on the right next to first base, playing with trucks. There was a game going on, and I was the somebody hit a screaming line drive, hit me right in the side of the head. I what? <laughs> Did you hear what he just said? Did everybody hear it? I, so I remember it just was one of these things. It must have looked like this. It must have looked like a bump bump. You know, so then, but then I kind of, so later on, I'm, 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 a, I'm an outfielder. Right? So I, I'm looking up and this guy hits a, hits a real high fly. And so I got it, I got it, I got it. No, I don't get it. It hit me right in the eye. Just whack right in the eye. And so... Uh, then naturally, holy smokes, I had this unbelievable shiner. So then I, I went to the table to have some dinner to eat with the rest of the family and, and then my sister sitting across from me. I come from a family of five and so we had a round table and I have this big black eye and she's sitting and it's naturally full of compassion. Mom, would you tell Michael to turn around? He's making me sick. And so. So dutifully turned around, and and so why, so Mike, why exactly are you telling us that story? Because there was an eye thing, and she was she was sitting there, and she had to say, "Holy smokes, I can't look at him." It might have been something like what Paul had, maybe not a black eye, but some type of eye thing that was objectionable enough that people would listen to him and have to do. I have to watch his eyes do that thing that his eyes do, and. It wasn't something appealing. And anyways, what Paul determined, this thing was getting in the way of people listening to him. And what he determined is certainly God wants people to hear the good news, and he doesn't want the spokesperson of this good news to be objectionable. So he prayed three times, God, take this thing away. It's getting. I don't think he did it because it was painful for him. Not maybe, but that's not the basis upon which he asked. This is getting in the way. And Jesus said, uh, I'll tell you what, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. If they see Mr. Shiny 
preaching the good news. They're going to believe the good news so that they can be like Mr. Shiny. If they don't see Mr. Shiny, if they see Mr. Shiner, that was pretty good, wasn't it? I just, I just spur of the moment. Just have, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. But the objectionableness of the steward adds to the message. That's what Jesus ends up saying. Relative to being a spokesperson, what Paul was able to say, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties, but when I am weak, then I am strong. Relative to being an ambassador for the gospel, if I am shiny and slick and I've got it all together, I do it well and say it right, I might make people impressed, but I don't make them listen to the message. What Jesus ends up saying, as it relates to being a spokesperson, a shiny, smiley ambassador for the gospel is not really an ambassador for the gospel because the gospel is pushed forward by, what does it say? Does it, is your strength what causes the gospel to go forward? No, it isn't. His strength, our weakness, is a perfect, it's a perfect combination. Um, again, that sounds interesting, um, but it's, it's a painful reality. Um, how do we, how do we apply these truths? How do we apply these truths? Talk about applying it corporately to church. I ask you to think about the church God blesses. Um, it's tough to know. How can we tell large buildings, big budgets, uh, good reputation? What the Bible says relative to judging whether a church is effective or not, be careful. Uh, it says, look at the last thing. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. And what it's describing there, he will judge the motives of men's hearts. Let me tell you what I think this is saying. So God calls somebody to be a stewards of the gospel. Remember what a steward is? A steward is somebody who gives something that they've received. We've received the message and we're supposed to give the message. You ever do that game where you, you whisper something? You know, so there's a line of people. You ever do that? So you come down and you whisper, you know, and then it goes, and then it goes around. And then what you end up doing is seeing how well it was kind of woven its way. So if we started here and, and say, the Patriots will win the Super Bowl, and then you, yes. Then it worked its way up, and by the time it got to the end of the line, it would probably sound much different. Yeah. <laughs> Mouthy crew, mouthy crew. Um, there is an original message, and you can check the motives of the individuals who want to proclaim the message by their faithfulness to what the original message was. If I genuinely want to be a steward, I'm going to listen to the message, and as carefully as I can, replicate the message. Now, there might be something I'd want to add or take away, but you can tell if 
I am a steward in that how much do you care about precisely passing on what the message is? Don't change it to try to get people to obey. Don't throw fear, obligation, and guilt that you can determine. And I think that's what's going to happen. When Jesus comes back, he's going to say, this is what the original message was. And you're going to be able to tell the motives of the person who passed it on because, wait, if this was the original message, why did you say that? Why did you use fear, obligation, and guilt when Jesus didn't? Do you understand? It's talking about the motives of the communicator, the, most, the motives of the one who claims to speak on God's behalf. Um, is the church being faithful to the message? That's ultimately what's going to be assessed. It's not going to be buildings. It's not going to be budgets. It won't even be shiny people. To what degree did we try to understand the message and reflect it and pass it on? That's how we're going to be judged. We have been given a message, and we're to give it out. Um, let's apply it individually um, to spiritual growth. You have, a, you have a thorn. You have a thorn. I, I was I was putting a bed slats in once. I don't know what happened. I, I took the mattress out and and was putting bed slats in, and the bed slats had a it was, it was splintery. And I don't know what I did. I kind of tripped, and my hand skipped for. Yeah, I see. I, I just saw somebody go, and so it's and it just zammed just in, and I I knew I got a splinter. I knew I felt it. But I couldn't see it. And this got to the place where it, 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 it got swollen and I'm soaking it and I can't find, I got to the place where it was so bad I went to the emergency room and they x-rayed it and they didn't find a splinter. I'm saying, what the heck? And then this thing and I still have to soak it and be about a week and then I was at Famous Dave's. <laughs> Uh, this, is, this is a great story, and I'm pressing on my palm, and, and I see the edge of something in there. And then, what the heck? And then I just press it. It really was, it was this big. <laughs> this, no, but, but seriously, but this thing, it really came up about this, this far. It had driven straight down in. The thing about a thorn is that, I didn't get bed rest. You have to continue to function with a thorn. It's, it hurts. So everything you do, you're aware of it, but you don't get to call in sick. That's the way it is with a thorn in the flesh. It's something that it's not so bad that you're able to give up, but it's bad enough that you have to carry around some pain. Um, weakness is painful. A thorn is painful physically. It could be painful emotionally and painful socially. Um, I want to apply this to us as you think about being an individual who, to and through whom God would reveal himself. Um, there are situations that you have that are painful. Things that get in the way of your testimony. They prevent you, perhaps in your mind, from being the kind of spokesperson that God would want you to be. 
And what we assume is, if God takes away this problem, if God takes away this situation, I will be in the position to love God more purely. I will be in a position to be a better representative of his. I need to stop having this issue. I need to get rid of this encumbrance. Some of us feel that we have to tolerate something or someone that gets in the way of our being the people that God wants us to be individually. We see, if I could just get rid of this relationship, this person, this struggle, this emotional issue, this physical issue, this spiritual issue, if I could just lay that aside, I could move on and be a better testimony, a better spokesperson for Jesus. That makes sense at one level. The problem is, it's not biblical. There are things you struggle with, and those things, while being painful, are not harmful. Do you understand the difference between harmful and painful? There are some things that are painful. Thorns are painful, but they aren't harmful. In fact, in fact, the lack of a thorn is harmful. If you don't have issues that you struggle with, that doesn't say really good things about spiritual maturity because all of us need to deal with them. Because when we are weak, then we are We pray for us. Father, it's true that Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. And it's not a perfect, shiny individual who is the best spokesperson for the kingdom. It's one who has struggles, but understands that those struggles don't mean that you're not with us. That's a trap. We believe that if you're really with us, then everything is going great. We're shiny and nice, and if you're not, then things fall apart. That's not the way it is. You are with us. You promise to be. And you tell us that when we're weak, we're strong. You're strong. And ask that you would continue to help us to understand that you're with us. Help us to be authentic in our relationship with you. And reflect hope. Not because we're perfect, but because you are. In Jesus' name, amen.